Welcome to Sabbath School for May 23, 2020. Another fantastic lesson study, this time on one of my favorite topics, the story of creation and how it's a foundation of our entire Christian belief system. But before we get into that, we want to focus on mission. This week, our global feature is actually an animated mission story, good for all ages. Check it out. Little Agnieszka grew up in beautiful countryside in southern Poland. A big green forest stood on one side of her house. A green meadow with pretty white daisies and pink and purple wildflowers stretched out on the other side of the house. Agnieszka loved nature, but she was easily frightened. She didn't like the dark. Strangers were scary. Her family had cats, dogs, and chickens, but she was scared of them. She was especially terrified of mooing cows and gobbly-gobbling turkeys. Fortunately, no cows or turkeys lived at her house. But a flock of turkeys did live in the yard of a farmhouse that she passed on the way to school. Agnieszka loved school, and she loved walking to school. One morning, she skipped along the road to the village and turned the corner to school. A few steps later, she saw something that filled her with horror. She stopped in her tracks. Dozens of gobbly-gobbling turkeys were wandering on the road. The birds were enormous, and they made a loud, scary racket. Agnieszka looked to one side of the road, a rushing stream. She couldn't walk through it. She looked to the other side. More gobbly-gobbling turkeys were walking in a ditch and strolling in the adjacent meadow. She couldn't walk there. She looked beyond the meadow. The gate to the farmhouse fence was open, and the yard was empty. The turkeys had escaped from there. Agnieszka was trapped. She couldn't go to school because of the gobbly-gobbling turkeys. She couldn't go home because then she would be late for school. She sat down on the road to hide from the turkeys. God, help me! she prayed. Opening her eyes, she saw an elderly man riding a bicycle toward her. The man wore dark gray clothes and a dark gray cap. His bicycle was dark gray. He was coming from the direction of the school. Fearlessly entering the flock of gobbly-gobbling turkeys, he energetically waved his arms and shouted, Shoo! Shoo! The turkeys gobbled even more and made a frantic dash toward their yard. Feathers flew, and the screech of the gobbly-gobbling turkeys was deafening. (laughs) Agnieszka was surprised that the stranger wasn't scared of the turkeys. She had never seen him before, but she wasn't afraid. He looked sort of familiar. As the old man rode past her, he said kindly, It's all right now. Agnieszka's mouth dropped open in amazement. She looked at the turkeys gobbly-gobbling back in their yard. She looked back at the road to wave at the old man. He had disappeared. Agnieszka happily ran to school. She wasn't even late. The turkeys never invaded the road again. Agnieszka has always remembered God's answer to her frightened prayer. Now the mother of two children, she tells them how the stranger scared away the turkeys. I don't know whether he was an ordinary man or an angel she says. But I know the victory came from God. I was able to survive the turkeys with God's help. Now great as the global mission is and how wonderful it is we get to be part of that world movement, Our portion of that field here in the Michigan Conference is assigned to us by the Lord, and today we have a special guest. We have Pastor Bob Stewart here to talk about some of the mission that's going on inside of the Michigan Conference. Welcome to Sabbath School, Pastor Stewart. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, I called you Pastor Stewart because you are, but you have a, a, a much longer title now. You are, if I'm not mistaken, the Associate Director of the Ministerial Department for Multi Ethnic Ministries. Is that correct? That's correct. Now that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what exactly that, what is multi-ethnic ministries? What does it entail? Well, it it involves taking care of or overseeing the ethnic churches or groups that are in Michigan. There's a lot of refugees or immigrants that have come into our state, and we have a number of them that are spread out mostly in the lower, um, lower part of Michigan. Okay. 
So when you say groups and, and refugees, what, give us a sample. What what are some of the what are some of the groups that are here in our territory? Well, over in Warren, in the Detroit area, we have the Chaldean Christians that come from Iraq and and uh, Iran, and then we have Romanians there in uh, in the Detroit area, and we also have over in in Niles down by Berrien Springs, we have. Malawians and Zimbabweans. Mm. We have uh, Indonesians, we have Filipinos, we have Laotians, we have um, Rwandans, uh, Congolese, and also Burmese. Wow, so Quite you so that you just rattle off a bunch of different like, groups from not just different countries, but literally different continents That's right. that are all represented here. Are all those groups um, assimilated to English? Are they been there a long time and they're just culturally background? Or are they still speaking their native languages? Like how, how, uh, how does this work? <laughs> Some of them, like the Chaldeans, to a large degree, they're better assimilated here. But m- more of our, or some of our, most of our recent uh, refugees, for instance, the Burmese and the, the Rwandan-speaking or Kirwandan-speaking uh, refugees, are uh, acclimating, let's just say. In fact, I had one of my uh, elders when I was over in Grand Rapids tell me that, he said, Pastor, when we first come here for the first two weeks, all we want to do is go home. Really? Because it's so different. There's such a cultural shock for them. Mm. And some of those you're saying are still in that transition. They're still fresh enough to the experience that they're acclimating, as you say. Yes, yes. It's, It's hard for us to understand if we were to put ourselves, for instance, into, say, Russia or the Middle East as a immigrant or a refugee, and we would have to learn their language and understand their filing system or their their uh, protocols for being citizens or doing mm-hmm. things. Uh, it would give us an idea of how tremendously confusing and difficult it is for them. Wow. So what are, and it would probably be easy to list off some of the unique challenges that they face, like you just mentioned, language and protocols and assimilation, all that. But are there any uh, uniquenesses within those culture groups that give them some advantages when it comes to their community of faith? Do they have any uniquenesses that maybe we could look to and say, hey, that's really great what you guys are doing? You know, Cameron, that's one of the reasons that I fall in love with this this particular work, because... Mm -hmm. In my work, especially with the uh, Kirwandan speaking, the people from Rwanda and Africa and all, I found that they emphasize family, like mm. it used to be in you know, hundred years ago in America mm. or so. But family is very important, and even though it's a cliche that has gone around for many, many, many years, uh, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the way it is for the Kirwandan speaking and the Burmese and, and all, most of them. There is a strong emphasis on the importance of family and mm-hmm. loyalty there. And I think we can learn a lot from them in that. Okay, so they're, they're, they do have the advantage of some of those cultural ex- expectations of family closeness and communication, whatnot. Uh, but what about some of those, let's go back to some of those unique challenges that they face. What are some of the most pressing issues that they have to deal with uh, that we may not, be, we might take for granted or not even notice, but they're faced with uh, regularly? Yeah, I, I noticed when I began to work with them that um, many of them come over here with degrees, whether they're teachers or mm-hmm. nurses or even doctors. Uh, there's one that I know of that has a PhD in pharma, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. uh, work. But when they come over to America, those degrees are not valid. Mm. And so unfortunately, most of them end up working in factory jobs, Mm. whether they're educated or not, and uh, most of those jobs are low paying. So as a consequence, they're living from week to week, paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to figure out um, uh, how to navigate this system, this this, uh, society we live in. And of course, for those that come from the equatorial areas, like the Burmese or the The, uh, the climate Africans, might be different. They are really shocked by the weather, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I came from another place in the United States. I'm still shocked by it. I can't imagine. That's got to be challenging for sure. Yeah. But, but the, the main thing is, is that even when they're here for a while, well, first of all, when they first come here, uh, usually, uh, well, all the time they are sponsored. Usually it's the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, um, mm. the Bethany Christian Services or Samaritus uh, mm-hmm. is Lutheran. And uh, they sponsor them, they bring them in, they set them up in a house, they give them a stipend for the first three months, I think it is, Hmm. and they help them to find work. But after that, after that three months or so, they're on their own. 
Mm. And uh, they do still continue to provide services, but it's not quite as intensive as it is in the first part. So many times the people uh, who have been struggling with that and not quite got a handle on it are kind of falling through the cracks. Mm. And that's where our local churches come, can come in to uh, come under, underneath them and help them out quite a bit. Well, which segues to the question I was going to ask, and again, we have to go for time, but in, in the time that we have remaining, what are some tangible ways, what are some practical things that church members or local church congregations or the rest of the conference here in Michigan do to help to, get, to assist them in that assimilation process or getting their feet out of them or helping their churches to expand and, and, and to thrive? What could we do to be a help? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, if, take, for instance, our present situation with the coronavirus. Uh, there are quite a number of them that have lost their jobs mm. because they were factory jobs and they were you know, closed down with the governor's um, uh, order. And so they are, some of them are re receiving uh, um, unemployment, but some of them it's very difficult for them to navigate how to apply for unemployment. Even our own Anglo people sometimes have a struggle with that. And so they're, they're struggling sometimes with food needs. And one of the things that we've worked with the community services director here at the conference is that we're going to do a food drive. We're going to be sharing that with people that are in need of that. Now, I don't want you to, I don't want our viewers to be left with the impression that they're just a totally needy people. They're actually actively reaching out to their communities as well. Okay. So many of the people that we are going to be helping uh, in a few weeks here are going to be people in their own community that are not Adventist that they're going to be seeking out that have those same kind of needs as well. Fascinating. So they're even from their perspective of need looking for ways to minister to others right. even in this time. That's right. That's fascinating. Well, yeah. Bob, we have to go, but thank you so much for the work that you're doing. God bless all the efforts in the multi-ethnic ministry phases. You've rattled off so many of them, it's hard to even put your mind around what's going on. But Clearly, if, oh, go ahead. If I could say just Please. one thing to our viewers, that, that uh, if you want to have some kind of a ministry uh, for your church, I would encourage you to look around your town or your city and find out if there are some refugees there that are in need and think about them as, as missionaries that God has brought over here to America that need our, our support at this time. I think you will be richly blessed as you interact with them and, and provide. Amen. Thank you for being with us at Sabbath School this morning, Bob. Okay. All right, so we've seen our global mission feature. We've had our local conference interview here with Pastor Bob Stewart in the multi-ethnic ministries. And now we don't want to ever forget that all ministry is supposed to be inherently personal. So here is yet another testimony of how the Lord is working through the lives of dedicated individuals right here in the Michigan Conference. My name is Shelley. I'm a massage therapist and I work from home, which gives me the ability to be able to set my own hours and pick who I would like to see and not see. The way that I have used that to witness to others is by just starting right off with asking them, can I pray for you? Because I feel that not, who knows the body better than the one who created it? And so I like to invite Jesus to come in put his hands on mine, and to guide my hands as I work with them. But it also then opens up the door. They know then I'm a Christian. If they have anything in their hearts that they want to share, then I get to witness for Jesus. Most people are extremely happy that I'm willing to pray with them, and it actually puts them at a ease, especially those that have never had a massage before. They just totally relax then. They're not afraid anymore. I have had this study with this lady. She um, came in. Um, she had received one of my gift certificates and came in for a massage and um, we built up a friendship and over time I think it was probably about her third or fourth massage when I just felt the Holy Spirit prompting me saying ask her if she would like to study the Bible ask her if she'd like to study the Bible and I'm always trying to dismiss that thought I don't know why <laughs> but she's very active in the church that she goes to but um, I asked her, and she was more than happy to study. She told me she didn't really know what was in the Bible, and when she reads the Bible, she doesn't understand it. And so we started studying the Bible. In fact, recently we just covered um, the Sabbath and the change of the Sabbath. So she's very, 
she's under tremendous conviction and she's kind of just toying with those ideas. What do I do, do with this? You know, because she is so active in her church, but yet she knows and sees that the Sabbath is real and that it wasn't changed and that that's God's special day. Oh, she's so appreciative of what I am doing. She just thanks me all the time for showing her things in the Bible that she never knew was there. She used to be able to, you know, just pick it up and try to read it and it would just be just empty. She's read through the Bible, I think she said two or three times. And just, it just feels just empty to her. She she said, I want to have a relationship with Jesus the way you have one because I can see it's real and it's alive. And I've never felt or had that relationship with him before. I would say look for every opportunity. The world is full of broken people and they're all around you. Just ask God for the opportunities and I'll tell you what, His Holy Spirit will prompt you every time. And if we ask Him to prompt us and make sure that we hear that still small voice, don't shut it out because He will speak to you. He will tell you, reach out to that person, reach out to this person. Maybe it's just a smile one day, and maybe it's another day. Notice that they're down. Ask them, hey, are you okay? Do you, would you like to talk or share a promise or something? There's just so many different ways to be able to reach them in wherever you are. It doesn't have to be just in a massage room with people. <laughs> All right, Pastor Howard, we have come to the lesson study element of our Sabbath School program, and I am particularly excited about this week's. Oh, yeah. In fact, it's going to be this week and next week because right. both these two weeks we're talking about uh, lessons eight and nine here, Genesis as foundation, the story of creation and how it's so fundamental to our entire mm-hmm. paradigm of faith. Yes. And there's such, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of rich stuff. We're not even going to come close to to taking away all that we could from this rich study. That's right. We got to dive into it, but oh yes, we we of course we have our memory verse, and uh, we've been challenging putting that challenge out. So we're going to have you check out uh, the submission for this week's memory verse, and we are thankful to have you keep sending them in, and more than that, memorizing the memory verse. Amen. So Amen. check it out. This is Kalamazoo Junior Academy, and they're going to recite the memory verse today from John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Good morning, church family. This is Brooke and Lenny Schaefer, and we are here to recite this week's memory verse, John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 1 through 4. Happy Sabbath. All right, so, Pastor Howard, we've had our mission report. We've had our memory verse. The only thing lacking is a word of prayer, and then we can dive into this week's lesson study. Can you lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the word of truth. And as we have had the blessing this uh, quarter of going over and being reaffirmed in how important the word is to our faith experience, we pray the Holy Spirit that inspired the authors of Scripture would guide us today in our study. Give us a practical understanding, Lord, that will, that will uh, continue to build our faith and trust in you. But we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, Lesson 8, Genesis is Foundation, Part 1. You know, I'm thinking to myself that our viewers may be, you know, hey, we're studying Scripture and interpreting Scripture. And have we moved on to a quarterly on creation now? <laughs> yeah. And so that may be a question that comes up. Why, why creation in the middle of this study on Yeah, there's only 13 scripture. weeks. Why are we taking two, two of those weeks, weeks to That's focus right. on this one story in the Bible? Well, and, and I don't know about in your experience, but I've had uh, friendships with people who have different perspectives on the Bible and creation specifically. And I hear things sometimes like, well, I mean, 
I guess you could read it that way, or I could read it this way, or maybe it's not even literal. It doesn't really, but the real importance is later on in the scripture, and it's kind of a dismissive nature when it comes to, even Christians when it comes to the yes. story of creation. So well, why are we... Well, let me interject here yeah. that uh, I, I looked this up, and you can find it in a Wikipedia article on theist, what's called theistic evolution. That is evolution that has basically, that, that God used the process yeah, of evolution. God directed evolution. Yeah. And in fact, that's what this lesson is really intending to ad- address is, is theistic evolution something that can really be taken from a plain reading of scripture? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may sound crazy to some of our viewers to say, wait, wait a minute, you know, I mean, the Bible says God created and isn't that what everybody believes? But Eugenie Scott, who's the director, executive director of the National Center for Science Education here in the United States of America, said in one form or another, theistic evolution is the view of creation taught at the majority of mainline Protestant seminaries. This isn't just mm. in the churches. This is taught to the pastors who teach the churches. Mm-hmm. The, the, again, let me say that again. Theistic evolutionism, she says, is the view of creation taught at the majority of mainline Protestant seminaries, and it is the official position of the Catholic Church. Well, if you just take, for instance, the Catholic Church alone, that's over one billion adherents in a structure that spans the globe teaching right. this as fact. And then it mentioned mainline Protestant, not just churches, but seminaries who teach. So this is a huge issue even inside of the Christian church. That's right. Because you would think like, oh, the non-believers, they're the evolutionists and creationists are those who believe the Bible. But there's a massive wealth of even Christian believers who struggle with this question of origins and the story of creation and have come to some, I believe, not just different, but biblically inconsistent and, in fact, uh, faith-destroying conclusions with theistic right. evolution. So this is an important well, topic. Well, that's understandable to a degree mm-hmm. for somebody who holds to a view of higher critical, a higher critical view of inspiration, where you don't believe the whole Bible's inspired, you know, and the author's kind of mixed in their own. Then you can weave some of that in, but it's especially... Alarming is the word that comes to my mind in the Seventh-day Adventist church where we claim as a church not to hold in uh, to mm-hmm. higher criticism. A very and high regard for scripture, things. yeah. This is the, the, the word of God, the inspired word of God, all of it. And um, anyway, the, the view we hold of scripture is not a higher critical view and yet it has crept it, this idea of theistic evolution has crept into our own church. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in an official way. No, but it's definitely in the conversation. That's right. Yes, it is. And so one of the things the lesson highlights just right there on Sabbath afternoon's uh, study um, are all the things that are impacted by a variation yeah. of understanding. Because, I, you know, I've had people say, well, what difference does it make really? Okay, whether it's six literal yeah. days or long periods of time or whatever. But the, and it lists off, and we can't quote it all here. It's but a domino effect. It is a domino effect. And it lists off like the nature of the Godhead, you know, the truth about the Sabbath or the great controversy, the picture of the origin of evil, salvation and redemption, the flood, the covenant, uh, the word of God itself, the character of God, the nature of humanity, marriage, stewardship. I mean, it goes on and on and on. That's the right. dominoes don't stop when we, when we have a difference of perspective on this origin story. Yes where it ends up is greatly divergent and it changes our entire faith platform. That's right. The, the origin story, it lays the foundation for everything else. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you take that out of the picture, then it, it obviously affects everything else in that domino effect, just one after the other. And so the lesson, the whole purpose of the lesson this week is to take a look at scripture and ask, is this a viewpoint, theistic evolution, that we can draw from Scripture, or does mm. Scripture support the plain reading of the text in Genesis? Now, that's a very important point, and I hope you caught what he just said, that, that the lesson's emphasis week this week is not necessarily to go point by point and debunk evolutionary theory or even theism. Mm-hmm. The question is, what does the Bible itself say about its own origin story? Do Bible writers after Moses refer to it as an allegory or a metaphor or simply spiritualize it away or leave open the door to long... Or is there a consistent picture from Genesis to Revelation of a singular view of a literal creation process just as Moses outlined it in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So there's a lot we are not, let me be clear, there's a lot we could be touching on this week that we're not going to because we want to stick to that simple question, what does the Bible itself reveal about creation? That's right. 
And the lesson moves right away on Sunday's lesson into Genesis 1-1. And as we were talking earlier, really? not Genesis 1, 1 through 3, right. but right there in the very first sentence, if mm -hmm. you just take what the Bible tells us, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have God existing in the beginning. In the beginning, God was already there. Well, already even existed. before that, it presumes there was a beginning. That's right. Like the the, the <laughs> beginning, right. the whole story of humanity and God's relationship, our fall, the redemption, all that mm -hmm. process had a start. That's right. It There's didn't just origin there. morph out of a long, there was a point where it wasn't, and then it began. And, God sa and, it, and God's word says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's right. And our memory verse harkens to that this week where it says, it speaks of Christ and it says, through him, all things were created. Mm -hmm. Through all, to him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made that was made. Mm -hmm. So you have God first in the beginning mm -hmm. and then subsequently after him comes everything else. Yes. And so uh, the, the interesting thing about that is it addresses some of the, the in fact, the lesson brings this out and I highlighted this on okay. Sunday. The first paragraph there on Sunday's lesson, kind of midway through, says, the greatest questions of philosophy regarding who we are, why we are here, and how we got here are answered by the first sentence of the Bible, the very first <laughs> sentence. And these are the questions people ask across the board. Why, why do I exist? How did we get here? Where right? we these come are the from? fundamental yeah. questions that are answered right there in the existence of God. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, so not, again, not just the existence of God, but the activity of God in Absolutely. creating. So God existed and there was a beginning for our world here, just as the Bible continues to say, and he's the one who determined its beginnings. He's the one who activated our life. And the story of the Bible is meant to be read as though there was a starting point and God initiated it. That's right. And the, and the reason I brought up the existence of God, well, the lesson as a thought question there at the bottom of the page on Sunday, and it asks this, what difference does it make to know that you were created by God? Mm. And uh, we've got to be brief on this, but we were discussing yeah. in, in uh, evolutionary theory, people who hold to that, people who have an atheistic worldview, often try to argue for morality. They mm -hmm. try to off, uh, are, you know, right and wrong and purpose in life. Mm -hmm. But the reality is there, if, if, this, if everything is a result of an evolutionary process, there's, it's random. Mm -hmm. There is no purpose. Right. There is no meaning. There is no uh, uh, morality, right and wrong. It, mm -hmm. It's all chemical yeah. uh, process and biological processes. But there is no intent of uh, uh, when, when you take God out of the picture, when you take a creator out of the mm -hmm. picture. It just, it just came to be. Right. And so there's two seismically opposite, I mean, like tectonic plate differences, viewpoints of how the world came into be. Either it was through the random natural processes with no supernatural divine, mm -hmm. or it was as creation says. But between those two extremes, many Christians have tried to, as we had talked about, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, entire seminaries, entire denominations have mm -hmm. devoted themselves to a what you would call a hybrid between the two. That there is a God and mm -hmm. he is love and he knows my name and he cares for me and there is purpose. At the same time, that God used the, used the processes of random and uh, predation and long eras of time and disease and all of which brought us into what we have now. So theistic evolution, as you referred to right. it, a God-driven evolutionary process is trying to take these two worldviews and cram them together and we've talked about this before too, but I, I respect the fact that uh, there are those who are dieheartedly committed to either one of those camps will in their all honesty say there really is no uh, company between those two, right? You either are on the right. camp of evolution or the camp of creation, but that middle ground grayish blur really kind of takes away from both of the distinctive features, right? You either have this one or this one. Absolutely. It makes me think of a, of a statement that Richard Dawkins made. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a well-known atheist, uh, author of The God Delusion. And yeah. just he's strong, not just passively atheist, no, he's actively, aggressively, <laughs> aggressively atheist. atheist. Yeah. Um, but he, he feels, you know, once Christian, whatever. And he, and he became, in fact, the evolutionary theory that won him over, won him from Christianity. Mm. And he makes the point in uh, an interview in the book, uh, in, the, in the movie, rather expelled 
which is on the mm-hmm. creation-evolution debate, he, he says in that uh, movie, in that interview, there's a kind of science defense lobby or an evolution defense lobby desperately wanting to be friendly to mainstream, sensible religious people. And the way you do that is to tell them, the religious people, that there's no incompatibility between science and religion. Mm. So he starts out by saying there are some in the field of science who want to win over the Christians. And so they, they tell them that there's it, th- that evolution and Christianity are, are compatible. Mm-hmm. But he goes on in the interview to say, but if I were put on trial and somebody were asked me in a court of law, Dr. Dawkins, how has evolution, has, has evolution impacted your Christianity? Has it taken you away from the beat? He said, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely has. Because they're incompatible. And he said, oh, that would be the worst kind of defense that uh, this, science, this science lobby could call. But his whole point is just what you were saying. And the lesson brings it out as well. These things are not compatible. Right. And the, uh, I don't know what political or other reasons, but people are arguing for compatibility. Mm-hmm. But as we go through this lesson, we're going to see that, that uh, from several aspects of Scripture that they're not compatible. On Sunday's lesson, uh, second paragraph in, mm-hmm. uh, the last part of the paragraph makes this point. Darwinian evolution is contradictory to Scripture in every way and attempts by some to harmonize it with the Bible make Christianity, or rather make Christians in <laughs> Christianity, yeah. look silly. Yeah. Like, are you serious? And it really seems like to such a strong together? statement to say, like, why? It's not silly. We're going to try to compromise. We're going to try to... But the reality is, as you play the tape to the end and you start to unwind the threads of all those connective mm-hmm. tissues, you realize there is no harmony between the two. You are either an evolutionist or you are a creationist, and you can respectably be either one. All right, I expect you for denying the faith or I expect you mm-hmm. affirming, but there, this mythical middle ground just makes everybody look silly. That's the right. atheists will say the same thing too. Christians will say the same thing. Pick a side and we have to understand again coming back to our lesson for this week, what does the Bible act does the Bible leave room well, that's for that what I ambiguity? Was say, the yeah. reason it makes a Christian look silly is as we're going to see through this lesson, you have to deny some of the plainest statements of scripture in order to hold that view. Right. In order to get there, you got to yeah. break some other stuff. So let's take a look at this. This week is powerful stuff. Well, we move into uh, uh, the lesson goes into talking about the days of creation. Mm-hmm. And this has been a point of, of contention in this whole debate that, that there are those in the theistic evolution camp who say, who are trying to put the two together, say, well, I believe what the Bible says about creation, but I don't believe that it, it was six literal days. And I'm guessing they would be comfortable if it just stopped at Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created that. Mm-hmm. Well, good. And, and then and yeah, they never get into the details of how or when or where. But the problem is the story goes on in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, and it makes some pretty right. incredible claims that are hard to, you know, tear apart. Right. Well, all the way through in the, in the lesson quotes from um, just the first, first few verses there, again, picking up a Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even, I mean, there are several important points. I think we could spend most of our time just on Monday's lesson alone about the importance of this day uh, declaration. But... You recognize, first of all, this is the first time, well, obviously, this is the first time anything's been talked about in the Bible. It's the right. very opening pages. But it, it defines in its own terms what a day is. Because you'll have people oh, say, right. well, a day could be <laughs> eons. It could be thousands or even millions of years, billions, you know. But the Bible itself, when it introduces the term day, it defines it by saying, you know, that unit of time that has an evening, And notice an evening, singular evening and singular morning. So two parts constitute one day, an evening part and a morning part. A dark and a light makes a single day. (laughs) Right. And now let me pause and interject in our discussion when we've been talking about interpreting scripture and, you know, hermeneutics, Mm -hmm. that the goal of interpretation is to come to the understanding of what the author meant. Right. You got to put yourself in Moses' shoes. What do you think he was trying to right. say? Right. There was here? all kinds of figurative things he could have used or symbology that he could have used or metaphor, I can only but instead. imagine Moses today yeah. when you're like, oh, so you meant there were these long, indefinite periods of time. He's like, Sorry, did, no. did I write day? I talked about this somewhere down when the sun <laughs> came evening up, and morning. evening and morning, and it's a day. And the first day, and, and the, the Bible, 
again, introduces us to the term day by defining. In fact, that's what God mm. called a day. You know, notice it, 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 there, there was no such thing as a day before this happened. So the very first time there was a day was when a day was created and God himself defined the term as being that unit of time with an evening yes. and a morning, period. Well, you highlighted that in the lesson. <laughs> Monday's lesson says that in uh, the fourth paragraph, it says it is interesting that God himself designates this name, Yom, the Hebrew name for day, for the first unit of time. Yom or day is defined with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. <laughs> right. It's so straightforward. And you know, the Bible goes on to say in the chapter uh, that uh, God made the two lights, the light to rule the heaven and the, light, uh, the, and the heavens, one to rule the day, one to rule the night. Right. Right. You have sunlight and you have moonlight. Right. And we know how a day works. Right. So, so anytime have, we see the sunlight and daylight, we're like, oh, where did that, that's from the right. original. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they, they were to define, they were there to help to know, oh, mm -hmm. this is when a day starts and ends with the revolving of planets and whatever. Well, we know right. how that works. And so this, yeah, I don't know how the scripture could be more plain. As well, to, and to even double down on that, then yeah. that's just day one. Then of course we know there was a day two and a day three and that's a day right. four. And the lesson brings out this important point about the cardinal numbers being used, right? In the mm. very next paragraph, thus the mm. seven days of creation are to be understood as a complete unit of time introduced by the cardinal number Ikad one, followed by ordinal numbers, second, third, fourth, etc. This pattern indicates a consecutive sequence of days culminating in the seventh day. So think about that saying. So you had that one that we just looked at, and the very next day there was another one what he called the second day. Yes. And it's definitive article, the second day. In any time in Hebrew language where there's a day with an ordinal number, first day, second day, third mm -hmm. day, it's always understood to be exactly what it means. A literal 24-hour <laughs> period with an evening and morning a day. So Moses, directed by the Holy Spirit, chose <laughs> right. appropriate language to right. communicate what he was trying to communicate. Right. So there's, and it's, oh wow, <laughs> there were six days, yeah. and then the seventh day God rested. Right. And so to me, this, as again, we're, our burden here this week is to look and see what does the scripture actually say about it. Now, if you want to jettison that in entirety, you can do that. But to try to weave into it like, well, I know it says day, but I think it means no, the scripture itself reveals what it means because it gives us these limiting terms that can yeah. only mean what it is. Well, and one of the things we're going to bring up in our discussion in a little bit is, you know, the, the reason for this is that people are trying to, trying to find acceptance mm. in some scientific viewpoints. And we brought this up before, but science is an observation by a finite being of infinite work. Mm. A man studying the work of God, I mean, it, I, I can't even, it, this, is, this pales in comparison to have uh, uh, your five-year-old watch you working on your, your, the engine on your car or doing a brake job and being able to ascertain and draw everything out of that that you're, right. there's going to be a limit to understanding. Right. And so he said, well, the scientist looked at the data he can see with his finite yeah. <laughs> eyes and right. so he's got it figured out. Right. I'm sorry. He doesn't have, it you know. doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. But but again, we can. Those are getting out away from. Right. What does Scripture say? Exactly. Our task today is looking because at what does some, the Scripture say. And we're talking about that. You know, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, by faith we believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things that exist are not uh, from those things that do appear. Mm -hmm. um, there's a level of faith in any belief system. Belief, belief system, faith go together, but any any yeah. religious kind of any framework that you look whatever, through life at all, yeah. There's got to be some level, and that level for the Christian is the Apostle Paul says in Romans ten seventeen that uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Mm -hmm. the, the the Christian believes what the Bible says, right? <laughs> anyway. So let's and so get when back we, to what the Bible exactly says. what does the Bible say about this topic of creation, right? Uh, that those were six literal. In fact, I remember in the discussions recently yes. in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they were talking about, because there's been a belief since, I mean, we've codified our belief since 1980, but even before that, Adventists have always been literal creationists, no doubt about it, mm -hmm. because the Word of God says so. But in recent terms, uh, recent years, decades, there's been a kind of a move to be more open to other theories and maybe right. have. And so there was an effort by the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists to reaffirm uh, our belief in creation. So instead of just saying we believe the Lord 
Lord created the, the, the world just as the Bible says. They wanted to make sure to insert terms like, and you can find these in statements of beliefs all over the place now, literal, consecutive, contiguous, 24-hour days, just as we know them now, including an evening. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Because because even you take... Um, well, the reason for that language is right. because people have kicked... But to think that, well, literal days. And then somebody says, I'm okay with literal days. They, but they happened... They happened... This literal eras of, of days. Or eras of <laughs> okay, no, no, no. 24-hour periods. Okay, but they didn't happen all sequential. No, <laughs> contiguous. They share the same border. You know what <laughs> exactly. We had to find it because we mean exactly what it says, right? And so uh, you can find that in our fundamental belief number six yeah. about creation. There's a very clear statement that Seventh-day Adventists hold that the Bible position is exactly what it says in its plain reading. <laughs> that God created in six literal consecutive 24 days. Well, let's days. move on to the Sabbath. I mean, okay. this, this is connected right here. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, if there's not a literal seventh day, what, what in are the we world doing? are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's what are we honoring, right? To yeah. our faith that you have the seventh day, and the Bible says in Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. He hallowed it. He, he blessed it. He, he, he set that day apart mm. for worship. And we see it reiterated in the commandments. Mm -hmm. In fact, the commandments tell us very explicitly mm -hmm. that there was a day, 24-hour mm -hmm. period. <laughs> and we know that because the, the Jews kept that 24-hour period and observed that, which was to commemorate the day mm -hmm. <laughs> in the beginning that God rested. Thus, the fourth commandment begins with the word remember. Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And now to, and I, uh, it's tied <laughs> to inseparably to creation. And how does it end? For in six days. The reason That's we remember exactly this right. in the six, seventh day is because God himself established that in the beginning. There was a literal beginning, just like there was a literal God. And he didn't just have a day. He had the seventh day right. that he set apart. And the lesson brings this out that on that, um, for that seventh day, the Lord did something different. Now, on the other six days, he reviewed his work. Mm -hmm. He qualified it as good. He didn't say it was partially good, except for maybe the sixth day where in the middle of it, he said it was good, that it was not good for man to be alone, but he fixed it, <laughs> right. right? But at the end, he said it was good. In fact, at the end of day six, he looked at everything and said it was very good. So it was yes. good, 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 very good. But beyond that, on the seventh day, the lesson brings out, and it's here at the, um, the, about three different things that the Lord does for the seventh day, distinct from what he did for those other good days. Yes. Uh, the first one, it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, is that he rested. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring this up. Um, consistently throughout the Bible and the writings of Ellen White, you'll notice that it refers to that first Sabbath as the Sabbath which the Lord rested and then he gives to man, mm -hmm. right? And we could go on a whole study about this, but you know, man didn't have six days of labor and the Sabbath day of rest. He was brought into existence on day six. Mm -hmm. He witnessed and he communed with God while he did his own resting, but it was after the Sabbath day when it was finished, he is able to give it to man because he had already done his resting, right? So four in six days, the Lord God created, and then he rested on the seventh day. So God didn't rest on any other days, but he did on that seventh day. Secondly, he blessed the seventh day. Now he thought the other days were good, but this one he blessed where he didn't do the other days. And thirdly, God sanctified it, set it apart, made it holy. Right. So the Sabbath is distinct from the other days in several important ways. If there was any day of the week that you could say is the Lord's day, it was the day that he rested, that he exemplified, that he blessed, that he sanctified, and then gave to us as a gift. That's right. Powerful. And we have the example throughout Scripture. And one could argue, for example, we talked about Exodus 16 mm -hmm. and the gathering of the manna. And it was very clear that there were, God treated the whole week, 24-hour periods, this, the, the sixth day, Friday, there was twice as much manna. Mm -hmm. On the seventh day, every recurring seventh day, they were to honor God on the Sabbath. Now, mm -hmm. somebody may say, well, that's just how God, you know, his, his thousand year rest or whatever, how he communicated to man. <laughs> but when Jesus himself came to the earth, yes. 
as the example and the model, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as his custom was. I mean, the whole idea of, of, of God in the flesh modeling, he was modeling Sabbath <laughs> observance. And it was that interesting. was much of his ministry. Exactly. And his ministry did not consist of freeing our minds from the simple view we had held no. for centuries. No, no, no. He doubled down and he went into it and he said, no, I'm going to continue to keep this. In fact, he exemplified it in his own Sabbath keeping, his own customs and habits. And he would go so far as to say that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That's right. Yeah. And the Sabbath was made for man. Yes, it In was. the context of, you know, pointing back to creation. Right. It, it uh, reminded me of a statement, so I included it here in our notes, Patriarchs and Prophets, and you'll see it on the screen. Uh, this is crystal clear. <laughs> uh, Ellen White wrote, The assumption that the events of the first week required thousands upon thousands of years strikes directly at the foundation of the fourth commandment. It represents the Creator as commanding men to observe the week of literal days in commemoration of vast indefinite periods. Incidentally, the title of this chapter is taken from is The Literal Week. (laughs) She continues, This is unlike his method of dealing with his creatures. It makes indefinite and obscure that which he has made very plain. Mm. It is infidelity in its most insidious and hence most dangerous form Its real character is so disguised that it is held and taught by many who profess to believe the Bible. I mean, you know, she doesn't pull punches, does she? You know, (laughs) that is a plain, it's a plain statement because the testimony of Scripture is plain. Yeah, it cannot be controverted. And and if we allow the devil to move us so easily off of the plain statements of Scripture, there's nowhere where he won't move us from. Mm. So, so creation story as the Bible lays it out in Genesis one obviously has an immediate impact on the Sabbath day because it was part of that creation story, right? But there are other things that are just as plain and clear that derive from that literal reading of Genesis that are still applicable to our lives today. Marriage being one of them, right? That's right. One of the things the lesson brings up is marriage. And and a couple passages we probably should take a look at here. Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can begin there if you have that. I do. Right, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now we're going to build on that with Genesis 2, and then we'll discuss a little bit. Genesis 2, verse 18, the lesson also brings up verse 18, and then we're going to read verses 21 to 24. Genesis 2, 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You just referred to this. Mm-hmm. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Going to verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Mm. Now, that passage is referred to in, uh, of course, you see it in the origin story, uh, the picture of man and woman and what the Bible designed it should be. But I think it's especially important that last verse, verse 24, which we're going to see in a moment, because Jesus actually quotes from that Mm. as if it is a real thing. In fact, maybe we ought to look at it. Yeah, just go straight there. Matthew 19. And I say that because, you know, some people read this story and they ridicule the idea, oh, I took a rib out of him and he put it, this is obviously figurative. Jesus did not treat it that way. Mm. Matthew chapter 19 and verses 3 through 6. Cameron, you want to read that for us? Sure. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
There's a lot that can be said here. Yes. Thinking about the order of it. But Jesus, as he, you know, this is one of those passages. Have you not read? It's a very... How many times does Jesus use, that'd be a fun study. How many times do we find Jesus saying that phrase? Have you not read? Well, and and the implication is, don't you believe what it says? Yeah. It's not, not just, have you not read it? But the implication is... Why are you asking me this question? You know well, the notice answer. Well, notice it's his reply to a theoretical or hypothetical, like a big philosophical question. He answers with, well, didn't you read? Right. And <laughs> from people who are well-educated in the scripture. Yes, exactly. So it, like that, my point again is more than just reading, Jesus believed and taught the plain, a plain teaching reading. of scripture. It's right. like, so look, it, it, it says it right there. It's plain yep. as day. Didn't so you he? understand it plainly and you apply it directly. He didn't expect them to be saying, oh yeah, but they're taking the rib out and all that. That's kind of figurative and everything else. He expected them to take it just as it reads. Exactly. And before we go on in the discussion, uh, part of the reason that the lesson is bringing this out, I wanted to to, uh, share this. The lesson shares it on uh, Wednesday in the first paragraph. And uh, this isn't a news necessarily to uh, those who are watching today. But it says the last decade has witnessed enormous changes in the way society and governments define marriage. Many nations of the world have approved same-sex marriages, overturning previous laws that have protected the family structure that that comprises at its center one man and one woman. This is an unprecedented development in many respects, and it raises new questions about the institution of marriage, the relationship of church and state, and the sanctity of marriage and the family as defined in Scripture. This is why Mm. we're looking at this, and the story here in Genesis really gives us a clear picture of marriage. Yes, it does. And one of the things that that same lesson brought out at the end, it said, Scripture is unequivocal that this relationship is to take place between a man and a woman, who themselves originate from their father and mother, also a man and a woman. That's right. <laughs> like, so it's not just this too is a model that you can do. When it says be fruitful and multiply, there's a biological necessity that there be a man and a woman. And then when it says honor your father and your mother, it assumes that your father and mother were single man and single woman who came together to make you and you in turn will. It, it's a continuous cycle that God set up, much like the days cycle. That's right. he, he built this relationship to be in perpetuity a foundation of society. Well, this is a loaded discussion because it strikes at practice of some individuals and some people have labeled it as being insensitive or right. being, uh, and, and certainly people have been insensitive to to all kinds of things. Sure. Okay. Um, but the point here is that, that, that we're looking at what the teaching of scripture is and the bottom line is there are and we're not trying to be insensitive here, but the homosexual relationship is not ideal for man. Mm-hmm. And scientific studies have shown right. that um, neither is perverted heterosexual relationship. Right. So we're not trying to make yeah, one. This isn't a homosexual versus heterosexual. It is the monogamous relationship that God established in creation that we're trying to say is so clearly written in Scripture. And I'm not going to re- look up the text, what we just read from Matthew 19. And Jesus said, have you not read? And but in that same passage, you go on to verse, uh, that passage, you go on to verse 8. And he says, you know, God, because of the hardness, they, said, they basically said to Jesus, yeah. well, listen, How Moses, Moses allowed divorce, let us yeah. get divorced. And Jesus said, Moses, because the hardness of your hearts permitted divorce, but from the beginning, it was not so. And mm. that phrase, what Jesus is saying when he says, from the beginning, it was not so, is that God made an allowance but that allowance was not the ideal. Mm. His point when he says from the beginning it was not so was to say in the beginning before sin, we have the picture, God's perfect picture, his perfect ideal. Mm -hmm. And we have a perfect ideal of marriage. And marriage was not instituted by anybody but God. Mm -hmm. It was part of the whole origin narrative in marriage originated with God. It was a a holy uh, union that Mm -hmm. God sanctified. Right. And you bring up an important thing about God's allowance versus his ideal, right? How in the beginning, when, and Jesus refers mm-hmm. to that. It's not like you bringing up, you're bringing up, because Jesus brought it up to his listeners in those days. He would say, but in the beginning it was not so, or have you not read that in the beginning God established? that The creation story reveals not only the nuts and bolts of how we came to be, but also the, the, the broader picture of the ideals that God revealed for humanity. How he, you know, I think of the marriage relationship. I think of, 
even food, right? Because yes. we didn't get into it in this lesson. We don't have time to go into it now. But does God in the Bible allow the eating of meat? Yes. yes. But in the beginning, it was not so. And, and <laughs> incidentally, in the new earth, it won't be so. Exactly. And how about the allowance for Israel to have a king? God did allow it, but it wasn't his first call. And in fact, he said, it's going to be a bad thing if you do. Mm -hmm. So just because God doesn't wipe us off the face of the earth for violating these things, doesn't mean it wasn't part of his original intent and That's his right. grandest ideal that is revealed in that scripture, that Well, uh, and even with narrative. what you're saying, there's original intent and what have you, but the Bible speaks prohibitively against homosexuality. Mm -hmm. It doesn't against eating clean meats. That's true. You know what I'm saying? So even, that's it not does an against allowance unclean of God. Meat. It, sure, exactly. it certainly so does. So that's what I'm saying. So my point here is that just like creation being literal seven day week and marriage being established by God as a holy institution, mm -hmm. these are things that were built into humanity's framework in that first uh, story in the Bible that if we as Christians detach from, if we separate ourselves from the literal nature of the days, mm -hmm. the seventh day Sabbath, the heterosexual monogamous marriage, all of a sudden the ripple effects, the domino effect of that, though we might profess to be Christian, it wreaks havoc on the faith downstream. Absolutely. In fact, there's a fascinating statement on this in the book Great Controversy. And the setting of the statement is the French Revolution, mm. where, where atheistic France was fighting against everything religious. Mm -hmm and uh, between marriage and the sacredness of it and the, the week. You know, yeah, the seven-day week seven itself. Day week. Yeah. Um, and Ellen White quotes, she's actually quoting from Sir Walter Scott in the book Great Controversy, if fiends, he's using that for demons, if mm -hmm. demons had set themselves to work to discover a mode of most effectually destroying whatever is venerable, graceful, or permanent in domestic life, and of obtaining at the same time an assurance that the mischief which it was their object to create should be perpetuated from one generation to another. Let's pause and just make mm -hmm. the point these men. Okay. If demons are thinking, you know, how can I really wreck humanity? What can I do to just really mess up domestic life and humanity and, and, and not only mess it up, but how can I make sure that it keeps happening over and over yeah. and perpetuate it? Yes. If demons had set themselves to work, et cetera, doing this, they could not have invented a more effectual plan than the degradation of marriage. Mm. Now that's a powerful statement. Yeah, and, if they and really course, wanted to undo society at a whole, take out that And marriage. we see that happening. That's, yes, that's happening. And not everybody perceives that to go away from God's ideal plan is mm -hmm. <laughs> never a good idea. Right. And that, again, is not to say that God can't be merciful for people who've grown up in circumstances in less than ideal you know, situations, right. of course. But clearly, the Lord knows that it is best for humanity to have that one man, one woman relationship where they bring children, be fruitful and multiply and raise them in the fear of the Lord. And society as a whole would bear the benefits of that relationship That's if right. we would adhere to what God has said in but His Word. But our goal as Christians is not to see how we can get the Bible to fit how we are. Absolutely. It's to see from the Bible what we should become and by the grace of God, you mm. know, allow Him to restore that image in us. And that moves us to our last uh, <laughs> a last point, last but certainly not least, yeah, not at the all fall least. of man in the cross. Now, you know, some people are, you were getting into this and say, yeah, look, creation, evolution, you have your views and I have my views. What's the big deal? As long as we uplift Christ, you right. know? It, it sounds so nice. It's it like, sure well, does. I don't want to get in the weeds of that either. Let's just agree to disagree on that. But when it comes to, and they'll say that all Let's scripture refers to Jesus. Jesus, right? The Bible wasn't written to teach us science and it wasn't written to teach us history. It was there to give us salvation, a picture of Jesus. So what does Ooh. evolution, even theistic evolution, right. do to Jesus in the plan of redemption? Well, let's just think about it. It shouldn't take but more than a few seconds to really kind of debunk mm. this. As, as nice as that platitude might sound that we articulated a minute ago, the reality is that if you take separate creation from redemption and treat one as mythical, yes. yet the other as literal, you've got a big problem on your <laughs> hand, right. right? Because, for instance, the Bible testifies that it was Jesus who was the agent of creation, right? So he's the one who created us in his image. He's the one who set the days and weeks into motion. He's the one who set up marriage. He's the one who, and those were all ideals before Genesis 3 records the fall. But wait a minute. You even think of the idea okay. of a creator. A creator is establishing a, a platform and a system of whatever. It, uh -huh. It's all harmoniously to benefit the creation. Right. So it's not like, oh, what can I, I'll throw marriage in there. No, oh, this whole picture is his, this, you want to be happy? You want to be fulfilled? This is how you do it. And he's right. making this. 
Well, with evolutionary theory, whether it's completely atheistic or theistic, yeah. whatever you want to call it, it's still built on the same platform of long periods of predation and, and, and death and disease and corruption and violence. Yeah. And it's just not at all pretty. It's, it's kind no. of grotesque, right? And we're going to say that, you know, because the Bible makes simple statements like that sin leads to death. That's right. And, you know, we see it in creation. We see it in the original account. Right. We see you also it attested see it, to in the New Testament. Exactly. Affirmed by New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul that there's a one-two punch of sin leading to by death. By one man, sin entered the world and death through right. sin. The book and, of Romans there. Very clear uh, affirmation of the right. Genesis but picture. in the evolutionary mindset, death has been around for a long time. In fact, it's death necessary. is not only necessary, it's beneficial. Yes. We get better through the process of dying and decay and violence and predatory behavior that that kind of grotesque world <laughs> actually makes a better world, right? <laughs> and we're getting better through this process. Which so, <laughs> we, if you're just tuning in, we don't believe. No, that. no, no, that is not but what we that believe. that is part and parcel of evolutionary theory. Absolutely. And so you have this model, this self-contradictory model yes. where death and disease and crime and all kinds of horrible things were slowly making the world better and then God steps in at some point and says now this is sin and I'm in fact it's so bad I'm going to save you from that sin by sending my own son to what yeah in fact you take you play the tape to the end and if the evolutionary model of human suffering actually creates improvements in humanity, that sin and the resultant effects are actually a benefit to mankind, then Christ interrupting that beautiful process with his redemption would actually be a hindrance to our advancement and growth. Yes. It's horrific. They don't, there's no There is meshing, no way no that you can, you cannot blend these two together. Well, you know, the, the statement that com, comes to my mind, one of my absolute favorites from the book, Education, page 15, talking about the plan of redemption. Mm. Notice how it ties in the work of Christ to his being creator in the creation account. To restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, Mm. to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. The whole purpose of God's <laughs> redemptive plan is to bring us back to that creative ideal. And if there was no creation and there is no ideal, then there, what in the world not, is redemption all about? You're not uplifting Jesus Come and on. honoring Jesus and no. buying into any level of, of evolution. You strip right. the power from right. the creator who spoke and it was, who That's commanded right. and it stood fast. Mercy. And of all the things that creation could undermine... Redemption right. itself is fundamental. So the creation story is tied inextricably to the redemption mm. story, both of which yes. are centered in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Mm. Well, um, a concluding statement. We were looking at this. Now, the, the lesson brings up a part of this. And the lesson did the same thing I tried to do, and that is to truncate the statement. But I'm going to share the whole thing uh, from Testimonies, Volume 8, page 258. It speaks so much to this point today. God has permitted a flood of light to be poured upon the world in the discoveries of science and art. But when professedly scientific men reason upon these subjects from a merely human point of view, they are sure to err. The greatest minds, if not guided by the word of God, become bewildered in their attempts to investigate the relations of science and revelation. Remember we talked about that. <laughs> this is the five-year-old trying to understand all dad's working. This is... Yeah. Like, oh, I can't figure it all out. Well, of course you can't. Yeah. You're looking at the work of God. Yes. Continuing on. Um, the creator and his works are beyond their comprehension. And because these cannot be explained by natural laws, Bible history is pronounced unreliable. Mm. Those who question the reliability of the scripture records have let go their anchor and are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. When they find themselves incapable of measuring the Creator and His works by their own imperfect knowledge of science, they question the existence of God and attribute infinite power to nature. Mm. 
In true science, there can be nothing contrary to the teaching of the Word of God, for both have the same author. Mm. A correct understanding of both will always prove them to be in harmony. Truth, whether in nature or in revelation, is harmonious with itself in all its manifestations. But the mind not enlightened by God's Spirit will ever be in darkness in regard to His power. This is why human ideas in regard to science so often contradict the teaching of God's Word. Now, I want you to take note in there, Mark, that not one time does she denigrate science. No. She uplifts incredible. it. She said, Science is fantastic. The problem is. Because we God is, God. she calls God the author of science. Exactly. The problem is, in our finite comprehension, our limited perspective, we can't, we think. Oh, well, the scientists are on this, the science, as though science is something fully in our pocket, a tool that we are completely adept <laughs> We've already adept talked at. about how right. many times scientists have had to come to a new understanding. Oh, look, a spider has eight legs. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the idea is that science isn't limited, neither is creation. It's our limitation. We can't get our minds and arms fully around God or his creative power or his even... Co Co Copernicus was imprisoned because <laughs> of yes. all things. He said, scientifically, everything doesn't revolve around the earth. <laughs> Exactly. And then they came to understand that he was right. Right. So science has uh, never been at fault. Science is just our way of observing, but we have a limited perspective. But what right. we have to trust is that God, from his perspective on high, has given us accurate history and deep insights that, praise the Lord, we have the privilege of being part of and studying now and throughout eternity. That's right. So I'm excited. And I'm excited we have another week to talk about this <laughs> some more. Right. We're going to need another week. We are going to need another week. <laughs> but friends, I hope that you can see already that we're excited about the fact that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Genesis story is accurate as God has given it to us, and it has incredible implications and applications for our lives today. So we want to be faithful to that word and its application in our lives. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another rich study. Thank you for giving us a word to study. And Lord, help us to appreciate it more and more. Help us to regard it as it is, sacred testimony from the very throne of God. And as we seek to reckon uh, with these great themes and to reconcile some disparate uh, misunderstanding parts that some people have, Lord, help us to be gracious, help us to be humble, help us to be willing to go where your word leads us. But most importantly, Lord, help us to seek to be like Jesus as we get to know him more and more. We pray it in Jesus' name.